Let's look at uh, Hebrews chapter 9. And I'm going to read a section here. It's the end of the section uh, verse, uh, from verse 23. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly them things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one, he entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. It's a fairly long section, and it's a part of a lot larger argument in chapter 9. And last week, then, I what I uh, discussed with uh, the beginning of chapter 9 is that this is over and against uh, a penal substitution. Hebrews chapter 9 is often the place that a Calvinist or people who uh, don't know they're Calvinists but teach the idea of a penal substitutionary atonement will go. So let me tell you my point, and if you... Uh, if, if we should get lost in, in the midst of it, at least you got the point. And that is that he's talking about the tabernacle and the temple, and he's equating this with impurity, and he's going to equate it with a willful sin uh, which leads to death. Um, and this is nearly inevitable and can be ritually cleansed. That is, the contact with death is inevitable. And it uh, pertains to two parts. The temple, he's described it in two parts. There's the outward parts of the temple. And there is the ritual uh, cleansing of this outward part. And then there is the second idea that penetrates to the Holy of Holies. Uh, and it has to do with the sacrifice of atonement. Um, and of course the idea is that the temple, what was it was being cleansed from, in both instances was death. Ritualistic, you know, contact with death, and I'll, I'll explain this more. Uh, but then uh, the rebellion of sin, which leads to death, which is taken care of in the Holy of Holies. And this then is referencing, of course, the death of Christ, that Christ's sacrifices, his sacrifice accomplishes this final freeing from death. And that's what he's picturing here. And the notion is very different than the focus on penalty and payment and sacrifice, which we get in uh, penal substitution or in many interpretations of Hebrews 9. Penal substitution is built on an economy of death. But this is ultimately the salvation which we receive in Christ 
it, it really moves beyond even the idea of dealing with sin and death because if we get the idea of the temple uh, and what Christ was really doing, it is the idea that uh, the purposes of creation are fulfilled in Christ. Uh, so it is not simply that Christianity is a negative, oh, we've dealt with sin, now everything's okay. No, it's the idea that Christ is fulfilling God's purposes, God's glory, God's creation. Uh, that life with God, cleansed of sin and death, was the purpose for which he created. And so the, pure, the purity laws were all about this great battle between life and death. It was all about, you know, if you remember when Moses said, choose this day, either life or death. That kind of sums it up. Uh, and the first step in choosing is distinguishing. We have to recognize in our world that the forces of death are everywhere. They're like tares mixed among the wheat. And so the purity laws of the Old Testament were a training for the people uh, of God, Israel, to choose uh, life and to remain vigilant uh, as to how they could be made impure. And so they're honest about the world, the, the laws, and it is in fact true that in our daily lives, we were discussing this in Sunday school, that there is no way they could avoid contact with death. Uh, that uh, death is before them in just the processes of the body, but just also then people die and they're going to have to con contact the dead. And so it's impossible to avoid death, but it's also the idea is it's impossible to avoid the conspiracy of sin and death that has brought this about. Mount Zion, where the, you know, it represents an offer, an opportunity to come to life. It says, choose life, come to God. That's the temple. Here is the living God. So return to Yahweh, the source of hope, the one who breathes life into dust. Uh, for Israel, the, the final victory over death has not yet appeared. Yet it is anticipated sacramentally in, at Mount Zion, in the temple. And, you know, they think of the temple as the place of the Edenic, you know, the, the Garden of Eden, the presence of God. And so the, the, the focus here, the point, choose life. As a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, each person is called upon to distinguish between the forces of life and death in their own lives. Every human being will face the forces of death in their body, in their morality, in the way they live this out, just as in the journey of life. And so Israel recognizes that our fragility distinguishes us from the Holy God. He's God, we're not. He's the source of life. We do not have life apart from him. And in this context, to be unclean was a word that identified the basic human truth we are ensnared by death. It did not mean disgusting. You know, it did not mean shocking. Uh, it was not even avoidable. Everybody is going to be unclean at some point. It did not make you wicked. 
It did not make you even a social outcast, though in extreme cases, you know, with diseases, there were place cases that they you were an outcast. But usually even then, there was means of gaining ritual purity. It was a reminder, though, that we are dust and to dust we will return. So the bodily impurities, you know, there are four phenomena in the Old Testament purification laws that they deal with. First of all, death, just the reality of dead bodies and dealing with the dead. You know, families would have to prepare. We just talked, you know, Chris described preparing his his grandfather uh, for a funeral. That's usually the case. In this culture, we have somebody that does that for us. Uh, So death, anything to do with blood, you know, uh, semen, uh, scale disease, skin disease, the common denominator in the purification was, was a death. That the denominator, the problem, all these is, is that it is connected with death. And so in the preachly text, the uncleanness that comes from cor- cor- corpses, carcasses, numbers 19, uh, describes if you even touch a corpse or enter into a tent where a person has died, or you touch a human bone, or you touch a grave even, then you're unclean for seven days. And of course, in ancient society, it would be hardly, you know, impossible or hardly possible uh, to avoid this, to avoid contact with the dead. And the woman or man who becomes unclean by touching a human corpse uh, must perform a bathing rite. You know, this should all begin to sound familiar. Uh, and as we think of baptism, what is baptism doing? We die, but we're cleansed of death and we're raised again. And so they're ritualistically clean uh, and they go through this performance and on the seventh day they're made clean. Seventh day, Sabbath, entering into God's rest. This is all part of Hebrews here. And so because of the impurity, the person would not be able to visit the tabernacle or later the temple until he was made clean. And of course that the idea is you're not able to enter into the presence of God. As, as long as death in some way clings to you. So they suffered a kind of exile, symbolically, right? Just as sin and death in reality is a kind of exile from the presence of God. How do we f- gain God's presence, you know, access to God's presence by getting rid? This is what Christ is going to do. He's going to rid us of the problem of death. And so during these times of abstinence from the tabernacle or the temple, uh, which would be a normal part of their life, uh, they would recognize death is the norm in this world. And so each of the phenomena that men and women were made impure by, uh, it was connected, you know, even skin disease, semen, menstrual blood, blood loss, even giving, even childbirth. Uh, there would they would go through you know Leviticus gives the rules for purification. Uh, skin disease is kind of an interesting one. Uh, the disease is described as causing the skin to lose color, and you become scaly, and you look like a kind of living corpse. Uh, and in in the impurity system, 
They literally said that the person with the skin disease is to be treated like a corpse. Uh, you remember Aaron and Miriam that in Numbers 12, uh, when they murmur against Moses and Miriam is afflicted with a skin disease and she became white as snow and Aaron pleads with Moses, he says, let her not become or be like a corpse. That is uh, uh, the idea of connection here with death. So to be unclean, it was, it was not to be wicked necessary or even disgusting. It was an ordinary feature of life. And it represented a moment of exile from the more perfect existence in which one could come to the temple. And the temporary exile would be relieved through the purification, through you know, rest, adulation, sacrifice, bathing. And the reality of death then is acknowledged up front. It's confronted with these regular rhythms of priestly purity law. So what's the, you know the, the priestly theology did not ignore death. It didn't obsess over death as if despair is the final word, but it acknowledged the weakness of the flesh while returning again and again to God who is the source of life. We can look at the temple there was a kind of gradation connected with the temple that the impurity affects the sacrifices, you know, the less severe pollution contaminates the outer courtyard, and so you would offer a burnt offering at the altar. Uh, the second more severe pollution was, you know, more malevolent. It would push further into the shrine itself, where the altar of incense, the menorah, the showbread table... And then the third, and this is the most serious, the wicked evils that penetrate to the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant and God's very dwelling place is connected. So there is the, the temple was a kind of picture of the barriers that are created, and they're all connected in some way to, to, to death. And so transgression, it, which is the, the word for the gravest, conspiracy with death humanly possible uh, it did not it was not general human wrongdoing it was very specific it was rebellion it points to the covenantal violation and it means rebellion against the promise against the covenant it originates in the political sphere where a vassal of a lord would rebel against his lord. Uh, by extension, it transferred to the divine realm, uh, in which it denotes Israel's rebellion against God. And this is the, the sin that requires the sacrifice, the major sacrifice of atonement. Uh, and so in Leviticus 16, for example, it seems that the sin that pierces the heart of the sanctuary most deeply is Israel's violations, their, their outright rebellion, uh, open and wanton, def wanton defiance of the Lord. So 
in one way we are beings in the world we're subject to the powers of death and we have to deal with death but at a more serious you know and so the the sacrifices they raise awareness we might say the books of Leviticus and Numbers articulate this symbolic system of purity laws but they're teaching the singular lesson the purity system reinforced the truth we're not God God is the source of life we do not have life in ourselves God is holy he's set apart and Zion is called the mountain of life we just read this and we can have no association with the valley of death yea though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death but the idea is that we're delivered out of that death so this confrontation between life and death takes place at the temple it takes place at Mount Zion here is the true axis of creation here's the true you know if the forces of evil can drive God from the holy of holies the symbolic idea is they've driven God from creation and so Zion is the picture it's a metaphor of the great drama between light and darkness life and death truth and falsehood it's this cosmic conflict that is being illustrated in the temple that will occur in the life death you know the passion of Christ in the resurrection so it's the slow approach of a culture of death though that had the greatest power to undo creation therefore Leviticus is a training uh, of the chosen people to return to God again and again return come back to the temple uh, even for those unintentional sins the psalmist pleads one thing I ask of the Lord only that do I seek to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord to frequent his temple in Psalm 27 and it may not be safe to dwell in the temple but there is nothing better than to dwell in the house of the Lord this is the picture you know that in the high priests he would wear the garments and the garments he would be clothed symbolically in glory glory is God's presence he's wrapped in the glory of God symbolically at least and the high priest is called to simultaneously uh, embody the earthly and the heavenly. He's bringing these two realms together. He's representing Israel, he's, but in a sense he's representing the whole uh, cosmos in heaven. Representing heavenly glory on earth. Bringing heaven and earth together. And this is the way to understand our victory of Christ. This is how we understand the New Testament. Uh, it's not a denial of Jesus died a brutal, violent death. But why? It is that death, it's, it's not death that redeems, but we're redeemed from death. And throughout, you know, this is Isaiah, it's Amos, it's Micah. What is the sacrifice? The sacrifice is a sacrifice of obedience. And that's explicitly highlighted by the writer of Hebrews who says, you know, that he 
He was obedient unto death. So the New Testament witness is to the faithful obedience of Jesus Christ, who is the pioneer of faithfulness into the presence of God. Uh, Hebrews 10, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Uh, that is, I think we can reference the body of Christ, but we are that body too. And so the burnt offering was considered the characteristic Jewish sacrifice uh, because it ritually expressed a most complete selflessness in love. And the entire gift was, you know, the idea is here is a life given to God. Hebrews calls for an end to sacrifice. He places the, the you know, he actually, the, in the prophets, uh, that God does not desire sacrifice, he desires obedience. And that's what all of this was pointing toward. Hebrews 9.14 How much more will the blood of Christ, through, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, without blemish to God pure of purify our conscience from what dead works to worship what the living God life and death contrasted here uh, and so for many I think we we think of penal substitutionary atonement as interpreting it and what we're missing well this is saying just the opposite of that uh, that in this, in penal substitution, the understanding is, oh, well, God requires death, and this is what satisfies his wrath. But that's not what the temple sacrifices meant. That's not uh, what the death of Jesus meant. Penal substitution, it, the whole thing is an economy of debt and repayment, and such that God himself is simply a participant in this cycle of violence. But God is not violent. God does not deal in death. But I think the economies of this world do. But God's hospitality, there is the sense that it excludes, but not because God offers a conditional grace, but because we refuse to bring together the form and the content of that hospitality, that grace. God's grace is received only with a willingness to be transformed into the content that this grace is. For this content characterizes God's own being. So if we're to participate in God's rest, if we're to enter into the, the temple, we have to learn the content. And so it's not that uh, you know God does not become human, so that as a mere human, he could repay an infinite debt to God. Uh, that couldn't... That can't be. That can't be done. But God becomes human so that human creatures can participate in God's economy of love and life. And there is the content of grace for us. Grace has an ethical content. And so it's essential to affirm. This is right here in chapter 9. God does not change. What does penal substitution teach about God? That God was angry and now he's not. That in some way he's changed. But we've just read that God is unchanging. God does not gain anything through the cross. 
Christ's death does not affect a change even in God's attitude toward humanity. God's attitude never alters. He desires the salvation of his creatures and he will not abandon them even to their own cruelties. And so God's unchanging nature meant the atonement, uh, you know, it can't mean what it means among American fundamentalists or uh, it can't mean that God changes his attitude. God does not change. That's the whole point of the writer of Hebrews. Therefore, the crucifixion is not an event in the life of God. This was Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, but actually Hegel is is taking uh, taking this from Luther. Uh, So the donation that Christ makes of himself draws creation. This is the idea, the high, you know, creation is brought into God's uh, presence, and it's the idea of God's eternal offering of himself through the Trinity, and his gift remains gift, uh, despite, I, I just think we tend to convert everything into an economy of debt and payment and exchange, but the idea here is that God's gift is just an eternal giving of himself in grace. And so God did not directly will the death of Christ. Uh, Who killed Christ? Not God, but we understand the Romans, the Jews, the the you know the people of that were the enemies of God. And so for Hebrews, we've talked. You know, Jesus suffering his death. It's not an offering to God in that sense. In chapter 2, it's his participation, Christ's participation in our enslavement to sin and death. Uh, He shares our humanity to the point of death, but he does so so that he overcomes death. He overcomes sin and death, chapter 2, verse 14 to 18. And what is the faith? It is his faithfulness, his carrying this out that overcomes fear and death. And this is what makes him the high priest of a new covenant that allows for his self-offering, his obedience, but also our obedience. He makes this offering, you know, in the, where does he do it? The writer says, in the heavenly tabernacle. So the offering is not just his suffering and death on the cross, but his faithfulness that overcomes death by taking it upon himself. He destroys the power of the devil who is the one who holds us in the power of death, the writer of Hebrews says. And then his completed work is that he offers this to God at the resurrection and ascension. On our behalf, not on God's behalf. God doesn't need anything, right? This is, you know, this is the strange thing about penal substitution. God needs Christ to die so he can solve his anger problem. That's nowhere in scripture. That is just over and against what the Old and New Testament teach. Um, He completed what we needed. He participated. You know, the debasement of God becomes the exaltation of humanity. Uh, And it includes the crucifixion. It includes this, you know, this fits Psalms 8. uh, The idea that Uh, is quoted in uh, chapter 2. God originally intended that humanity, it says in Psalms, be 
crowned with glory and honor. They could not accomplish this on their own because of why? The power of death. And Jesus becomes human. He takes on all that entails, including suffering and death, and he accomplishes God's original intention. Hebrews, or, or I think Hebrews, but Deuteronomy is being reflected throughout Hebrews. I have put before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life. If your offspring would live by loving the Lord your God, heeding his commands and holding fast to him. We are enabled to choose life in Christ. And so the temple was the summit of Israel's life, the place where God, life himself, dwelled among his people. And where Israel would gather to hold fast to the true source of life. Zion was the main battleground between the forces of life and the forces of death, symbolically. And I think it's Christ in which this battle occurs between life and death. But which wins, life or death? Well, obviously life reigns, right? Life rules in the resurrection of Christ even in the manner that he died that the grave could not hold him and so the whole notion Israel took uh, its position on the mountain of God uh, is the idea that they're ready to choose life and that should be the banner that, that we're under I think this is the Christian message if we miss this we've missed Christianity choose life God in Christ has defeated death and rebellion and all that it entails. We can be cleansed of death. Choose life. Let's sing it.